DW Living Planet with Sarah Stephan. Welcome to the show. This week, Living Planet is taking a break. So we're switching things up and are bringing you an episode from our colleagues over at DW's On the Green Fence podcast. It's the second installment of their new season on plastics, where they dive deep into the problem of microplastics that have been literally found everywhere, from the deepest parts of the ocean to the heights of Mount Everest. Do you know how much microplastics you inhale in a week? Well, here's my colleague Neil King with that info and more. Neil, take it away. There's nothing actually wrong with plastic. Plastic's a wonderful material. It's a, you know, it's a, a magic material that does all of these wonderful things and enables our modern day life. The thing that's wrong with plastic is the way that we use it. We're designing things to last for 100 years and then we're using them for 20 minutes and throwing them away. That's the problem. Every year, about 400 million tons of plastics are produced around the world. And about half are used to make single-use items, such as shopping bags, cups and packaging material. Unfortunately, only 9% of plastics are actually recycled. The rest is incinerated, goes to landfill or ends up in the environment. Every minute, the equivalent of one garbage truck of plastic is dumped into our ocean. And depending on their composition, it can take centuries for plastics to break down and degrade in nature. But even when that does happen, this can lead to new problems. We have found microplastics in just about every water sample that we've studied from anywhere in the world. So, in this second episode of our series on plastics, we'll be taking a closer look at microplastics, including some promising solutions to this very global problem. My name is Neil King, and this is DW's On the Green Fence podcast. Let's get started. Microplastics, which basically are just small fragments of plastic that are less than five millimeters long, have been found everywhere, from the deepest parts of the ocean to the heights of Mount Everest. Most microplastics start their journey on land, but eventually they are carried by rivers and wind to the world's oceans, where they enter the global ocean circulation system. Microplastics come from synthetic textiles, city dust, tires, road markings, marine coatings, personal care products and engineered plastic pellets. Now, once in the environment, microplastics can accumulate in animals, including fish and shellfish, and are consequently also consumed as food by humans. And it's not just seafood that's problematic here. Sewage sludge is used in agriculture as organic fertilizer. And since a lot of our wastewater contains microplastics, we are throwing up to 42,000 tons of microplastics onto European farmland every year. And so microplastics are also finding their way into our fruit and vegetables. Now, among the fruit and veg tested for a study in Italy, apples and carrots showed the highest level of microplastics. That's also my favourites, by the way. 
So they are in the air, the soil, and even the water we drink. A 2017 study into tap and bottled water in 14 countries found microplastics in 80% of the samples, with an average of 4.34 plastic particles per liter of water. The U.S. topped the list with 94% of samples containing microplastics. So we've literally got a bit of a microplastic cycle going here, and all the while we are producing new plastics to the tune of 400 million tons per year, a figure that could triple by 2060 if we don't change our ways. But if we are eating, drinking, and inhaling microplastics, what does this mean for our health? And just how much of this stuff is really ending up in our bodies? Well, depending on how much we're exposed to them, some estimates suggest that we ingest enough microplastic particles per week to make a credit card, or 50 plastic bags per year. And that sounds absolutely horrific to me. But again, what does this mean for our health? And because this seemingly simple question is actually very complicated, I'm going to need some help on this. I'm Tamara Galloway, and I'm a professor of ecotoxicology at the University of Exeter, UK. Tamara is considered one of the world's leading experts on microplastics, and her research was instrumental in banning so-called microbeads in the UK after she showed that just one shower could result in 100,000 microbeads being washed down the drain and ending up in the ocean. Microbeads are microplastics that are intentionally added to cosmetics and personal care products, by the way, because of their exfoliating properties. Now, the UK, together with the US, were among the few countries in the world to have implemented a ban on rinse-off cosmetic products containing plastic microbeads in 2017 and 2018, respectively. The European Union is expected to pass similar legislation later this year. But I digress. Let's get back to Tamara and her research on microplastics. We have found microplastics in just about every water sample that we've studied from anywhere in the world. Um, so we've taken water samples from shorelines near to high human populations. That's perhaps less surprising. We've taken water samples from extremely remote locations such as the Antarctic, Antarctic sea ice and the Galapagos Islands, some of the pristine ocean waters around about there. We find microplastics in all of those waters. Perhaps the more surprising thing is that we find microplastics in just about every species that we've studied. So if we look in the guts of those animals and if we use very, very sensitive techniques to look in the tissues as well, we can find evidence for tiny pieces of plastic that have been taken up into the gut of the animal um, and very tiny pieces can pass across the gut wall, be taken up into the circulatory system and we can find them in the tissues, for instance, in the liver And the same applies to humans, right? It's also and the same applies humans. to humans. Yeah, the same applies to humans. So we've known for many years that all of us have plastics additives in our bodies. That's not that's not something that's disputed at all. We've known that for for um, many years. Things like bisphenol A and phthalates and things that are associated with plastic packaging. The surprising thing is that we're now finding tiny pieces of plastic itself within the human body. Yeah, because I mean, there are these studies out there that, I mean, that it crosses the blood-brain barrier even, right? So it's been found in our yeah. brains. There are reports of, of plastics crossing the blood-brain barrier. Um, and also some reports of measuring plastics circulating in, in human blood. 
Uh, plastics, of course, were first shown, tiny pieces of microplastics were first shown to be passing through the human body by measuring stool samples, which is also what we do with many of our wildlife species. We see what people are excreting out at the end and so that we know what's passed through their bodies. Um, plastics have been found in colonoscopy, tissue samples in the human placenta, in all sorts of tissues in the body. What we don't know is what they're doing there. We've got some ideas, but we haven't been able to prove any of those things yet. Yeah, so that would have been my next question. Um, what does this mean? Just how dangerous is this also against the backdrop that, you know, some experts are saying that if nothing's done, plastic production could actually triple over the next decades. Um, what does this mean for human health and also for environmental health? Yeah, this is the big thing. We, we we don't yet know. It's incredibly difficult to do studies where you try to trace the effect of an environmental contaminant on human health. And that's because all of us are exposed to so many different things. And there are so many different confounding factors, such as our diet, our lifestyle, our health. Generally, when we're looking at the, the potential effects of plastic pollution. We're looking at things that are, are likely to be chronic and low level. We're not looking at acute toxicity that's going to kill us within a day. Those chronic um, health effects are incredibly difficult to differentiate from other things and to trace back to things that could be causing them. It's quite likely that tiny pieces of plastic uh, at the nanoscale, if they were embedded in tissues, are likely to cause irritation and inflammatory reactions. There's also, also the potential for um, the slow release of um, chemical additives that are in the plastics, things like plasticizers, um, mordants, additives, antioxidants, dyes, all of those other things that are present in plastic. When that plastic was designed, the risk assessment didn't really consider what would happen if a tiny piece of that plastic was embedded in one of our tissues. It considered the, the risks of it being a plastic bottle and what would happen to the contents on a shelf over several months. And likewise, we never really considered in the risk assessments what would happen um, to the environment if hundreds of thousands of tons of those plastics all ended up in a particular environment um, in one place. Tamara, you just said it's difficult to um, draw a direct connection between plastics and what it means for human health, you know, just how dangerous they are. Um, but you also said that they are excreted. Um, is it also possible that they are accumulated in the body over time, that we are adding plastics all the time and are not excreting them? That, that's certainly possible. Um, to the, the extent to which that is happening, we still don't know. Uh, if you look at some of the um, studies that have measured different plastics additives in the body, we've ourselves worked on a compound called bisphenol A. When we tried to look at the half-life of the, the chemical, the Studies found that the half-life you would expect for a chemical like bisphenol A, which has a very short half-life, we would expect after about six hours um, of somebody eating, uh, ingesting a meal that had bisphenol A in it, the half-life would, the bisphenol A level would start to fall. And what we typically saw in quite a few of our studies was that that didn't happen, that there was a, a baseline bisphenol A constantly present in the body that we couldn't ever explain. Now, we don't know if we can explain that through the presence of small pieces of plastic that are continuously releasing bisphenol A into the body so that there is an internal store. But it is a possibility. And that's what has to be studied so that we understand more about that body half-life. Yeah. So it is possible that we're actually taking plastics with us into the grave, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, we have to look this at at this in perspective as well, we're not all dying of cholera and typhoid and TB. Well, TB is slightly on the increase, but we're not dying of these big infectious diseases. 
our food is safer because it's packaged in in plastic. It's less likely to get um, infected and to pass um, food poisoning onto us. So it's all a balance, isn't it? We've, we've made things safer and we've made things last longer on a shelf, but we've created a slightly different problem in terms of the, the additives and the content of the plastic packaging and then what we do with it when it's finished with. If somebody uh, were listening to this now and is sort of thinking, actually, what can I do uh, to avoid, you know, ingesting or inhaling microplastics? Is there, I mean, is there a safer place where I can live or go to or, you know, do I have to move <laughs> into the forest or do I avoid eating fish or what can I do? You might move into the forest and get eaten by a wolf, mightn't you? <laughs> I mean, everything's relative, isn't it? Uh, to reduce your own exposure levels, try not to eat so much processed and packaged food. Try to think about how you're heating things up. Perhaps don't heat things in the microwave, in plastic repeatedly. Think about the the age of the plastics items you're using to avoid contaminating the environment always take a reusable cup with you so that you're not buying something and throwing it away i mean in the, the town where i live it's almost a badge of honor to have a disposable plastic cup full of coffee and then chuck it away it's like look at me i've got really cool disposable plastic cup and it's really not cool Let's just leave Tamara Galloway there for now. She will actually have the final word in this episode, so she is coming back. But um, the exposure aspect that I touched upon there with uh, Tamara, um, I followed up on that a little bit, and I found a YouGov survey that was carried out in the US in 2019 with over 600 adults. And uh, they were asked the question, which measures have you taken to reduce your production or contact with microplastics? And I thought the results were actually quite interesting. Let me just break this down for you. So 41% said that they had started to recycle more plastic products. 29% said that they tried to avoid buying food in plastic packaging. 28%, almost the same, said that they tried to avoid consuming drinks from plastic bottles. 17% said that they washed their skin more regularly to remove particulate matter. 13% said that they had stopped buying or wearing clothing made from synthetic materials. 12% said that they had done nothing but were planning to. And 21% said that they had done nothing and didn't plan on doing so either. Now, I find these figures quite ironic because given the biggest sources of microplastic pollution, probably the least effective method to reduce microplastics comes out top. And one of the most effective is at the bottom. It would be way more effective for us to ditch synthetic textiles in favour of natural ones because the single biggest source of microplastics in the ocean is synthetic textiles at 35%, followed by tyre wear at 28%. So it's the clothes we wear and the cars we drive that are having the biggest impact. But let's face it, we won't all be switching to plastic-free clothing and ditching our cars tomorrow, at least not globally. So what can we do to solve this problem? Well, one possible solution to limiting the influx of microplastics into the environment is filtering them out of our wastewater, for instance. The idea isn't new, but Australian researchers at RMIT University in Melbourne say they have developed a magnetic solvent from waste that can withdraw the tiniest microplastic particles from water in record time, within one hour to be precise. Now, that is new. 
To find out more, I got in touch with Professor Nikki Eschiagi, the chemical engineer that led the research team. We have tested our adsorbent for different type of microplastic and different size of the microplastic up to nanometer, 50 nanometer size. We can also still separate it. Nikki, um, the absorbent, I'm just trying to sort of visualize this. If I'm, I'm trying to picture an aquarium now and you, yeah. you, would, you would put this powder in the water. Yes. And then you would use a magnet to pull the powder back out and then the microplastics are latching on to the absorbent is that sort of the picture that that, that I'm yes getting? yes that's correct we is just the process is quite simple you just add this absorbent into the water uh mix it give it time one hour and then you if you put the magnet all absorbent and microplastic it will be separated from the water and clean water can be passed through and used Okay. And this absorbent that you put in the water, I mean, is, is it a secret what this absorbent exactly consists of? Is, is that something you can divulge? Um, we are um, uh, we are lodging the patent on that one. Uh, is, uh, and then the, the way that we have been processed and produced this absorbent, uh, it is a unique. And that sort of functionality comes because the way that we structure and engineer this absorbent. I mean, how much research have you done or are you conducting research into what side effects this might have on life in the water? Can it have negative side effects that you're not aware of yet? Because we are not leaving any pollutant, so there is no side effect for anything in the water, nothing leaching out our adsorbent. What are the biggest obstacles uh, that you're facing right now, you know, in scaling this process? Um, what, what are the things that still have to be resolved? Um, uh, I think is one of the biggest issue could be um, because often when people is coming for a commercial stage, they would expect that is it everything is 100% is working. And we, we say no, we don't know because we got the promising result uh, in the lab scale. But depending on uh, which water wastewater we are talking we have to still do research and development so some of the companies may not be want to invest between the lab to really um, industrial scale demonstration so filling up this gap there is still risk and whether any company is ready to do some risk on research and development that could be obstacle. So we are trying to overcome that challenges through the tapping the some government funding to co-fund with the industry. So that can reduce the risk for whichever industry is coming on board to scale up from the lab to the pilot plant demonstration. Many thanks to Professor Nikki Eshtiyagi from RMIT University in Melbourne there. Okay, so to me, this does sound like a very promising solution to clean up our act when it comes to microplastics in water. But uh, what about the second largest source of microplastics? Remember, tire wear. 
We're not going to give up driving cars anytime soon, are we, on the contrary, especially now that we are switching to electric cars, which ironically produce even more tyre wear than conventional ones because they tend to be a lot heavier because of the batteries. So there's more friction and more particles coming off the tyres every time you drive them. So how do we solve the tyre wear problem? I'm Hanson Chang. I'm one of the co-founders of the Tyre Collective. The Tyre Collective is a UK-based startup that has developed a device that absorbs the micropollutants from tyre wear, including microplastics. So let's dip into the chat I had with Hanson about their product. We started out the problem looking at microplastics kind of at large. And, you know, you read a lot about microfibers, you read about kind of single-use plastics. I think we were equally as shocked when we found out that tires is the second largest, largest microplastic pollutant in our oceans, yet nobody is talking about it. Um, and I think that's where we saw some, a value in kind of raising awareness on this problem, but then more importantly, finding a solution to tackle it. I was looking at your website and it struck me you had something that was there. It was very graphic and it really hit me. Uh, you had like these cubes um, showing um, how much uh, or how, you know, how many particles end up in this cube in a day from a London bus, from a car, from an EV. Um, and it, it was quite staggering just looking at these pictures of these cubes uh, with this black content. And it says here that the box on the left, with it, which is a bus that has the longest bus route in London, and it produces 336 grams of microplastics in just one day. Yeah, so that, that's the longest bus route in London. It drives about 40 miles, I think, per day uh, from Heathrow to West Croydon. Um, yeah, I think for us, you know, we were reading about the problem. And, you know, there are some initial literature studies on kind of outputs of where. Um, but it was very hard to actually visualize what that meant until... You know, we tracked various buses in London and looked at how much wear actually comes off. And then we multiplied that by their routes. And we were quite shocked at, at, the, at the scale of the problem, literally. Um, you know, I think normally when you think about these pollutants, they're just kind of in the air, in the water, and you don't really think about how much that actually accumulates to. Uh, you know, buses, because they're heavier, do produce more tire wear, uh, just given the weight of the vehicle. And their tires are also much larger. Um, so, yeah, we were quite shocked by those cubes as well. Yeah. I mean, how does that make you feel living in London? It almost, I mean, I like, I love London. I like being in London, but it almost makes me want to wear a face mask just looking at this. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it, it, we definitely look at tires differently uh, after we started the project. Um, I think hopefully everyone who listens to this podcast will look at tires slightly differently. Uh, you know, it's, we don't think about it as a pollutant, right? We think about it as, as, as this object that we use every day. And we all know tires wear down, but I just think we never kind of made that connection or thought about where these particles actually go. And, you know, it's getting into our air and into our waterway. So it does make sense, but I think it's just, it, we just never really thought about it from that perspective. Hmm. Okay, but you have come up with a very interesting solution. Can you please outline the solution and your product? Yeah, so... You know, we were very much set on finding a way to capture these pollutants. Um, and we identified that capturing at source right at the vehicle before it gets dispersed into the environment was the best time to capture it. Um, so we were we discovered that the tire particles themselves were charged from friction with the road. Our first prototype was we took some sandpaper to a tire and took a balloon and saw some of these particles jump up and down. And that's validated for us that we can potentially use electrostatics to capture these particulates. 
Um, so that's where we kind of developed more. And now we have a device that is attached onto a vehicle that uses electrostatics to attract uh, particles. And we utilize the airflow behind the wheel to entrain those particles through a device and a series of plates capture them. And how, I mean, how much of it do you manage to capture? How, how high is the success ratio, so to speak? Yeah, so at the moment, we're looking at kind of 15 to 20% of airborne tire wear road particles by mass. Um, we've been more focused on the purity of the samples, so really selectively capturing the pollutants out. So in our samples, about 95% of what we capture is a form of non-exhaust emissions, so tire rubber, uh, ultra-fine metal particulates, and also road wear particles. Okay. So if I were to picture this, it sounds like you've got like a mini vacuum cleaner installed, but well, just above every wheel of the car. Yeah. So at the moment we've been testing the rear wheels. Um, so that's, um, it, it's a, it's a kind of a black box that sits behind, right behind where your bumpers would be, uh, your mud guard would be, sorry. Kind of like a magnet that attracts uh, particulates coming off of the tires. Hansen, what's the consumer research on this like? How, how are consumers reacting to this? Is this something that they, they're going to go for? And, and how much more would they have to pay for this? Yeah, so, you know, we've been quite lucky since we launched the project that we've received tremendous inbound interest from anywhere from fleet operators to vehicle manufacturers to tire manufacturers. Um, I think within industry, tire wear has, is, has been a very well-known problem. It's just up until now, there hasn't been a solution. I think we directly fill that gap. Um, in terms of price, uh, we're still in R&D at the moment. Um, so the price is kind of in fluctuation. So we don't have an exact price yet. Okay. But you are already in talks with major car corporations? Yeah. So we work with OEMs um, to look at future integration, but we also work with the operators to look at how we can pilot and pilot our device. Okay. And just again, for me to try and visualize this, um, it's not a device that is clunky and sort of, you know, is on the side of the car. It's actually quite hidden. It's not something that you would see right away, is it? Yeah, it's definitely something that's below, because it's below the car, it's quite hidden, um, I think. But when you notice it, you're like, oh, what is this? I think so on some of our trials, you know, people have stopped us and asked us, you know, what is this device that is right under your car? Um, so it depends on how how where you're looking but it is quite hidden okay as you said you're in the r&d phase um i mean what do you think are the main obstacles right now to scaling this yeah i think um one of the major obstacles is that the you know tire wear as a whole as a pollutant there's still a lot of research being uh involved in it there are some legislative tailwinds in this field um but for kind of mass adoption of our device and also for kind of companies to really tackle this pollution we do need legislation to come in although at the moment there are some kind of knowledge gaps that need to be filled before we can reach that point many thanks to hansen cheng from the uk-based tire collective there now, Hansen told me that they intend to roll this tire wear device out in London and the UK first, but will also be targeting the EU and California once they're ready. And I think it's worth stressing here again that tire wear is a form of micronized rubber that can be upcycled into a variety of applications such as construction materials, 3D printing and shoe soles. 
And so catching these particles is a double bonus because it doesn't just reduce the overall level of microplastics pollution, it also helps save raw materials, energy and ultimately CO2 emissions as well. And of course climate change, fueled by CO2, is by far the biggest challenge of our time. So I would like to stress that for all the health implications that microplastics may or may not have, it's really important to remember that most plastics in their current design remain a key driver of CO2 emissions. And so I'd like to end on a soundbite from Tamara that really stuck with me. The plastics industry has a bigger carbon footprint than the aviation and shipping industries combined. And if we don't do something different, that is going to increase dramatically so that by 2050, it'll be about 20% of global carbon emissions. And that brings us to the end of this second episode of our plastic series. If you missed the first one, you can listen back wherever you get your podcasts or go to dw.com slash on the green fence. If you have any feedback or questions, please do drop us a line at onthegreenfence at dw.com. But before we go, here is what we've got planned for the next episode. Plastics are extremely hydrophobic compounds. They don't dissolve in water, but enzymes are active in water. And this is a barrier which is not easy to overcome. This is a little bit like playing lottery. So next week is all about plastic-eating enzymes. Are they a game-changer or just a distraction? Hope you join us again for that. Time to wrap up. Many thanks to my colleague and producer Natalie Muller and my sound engineer Gerd Georgi. And a big thank you to all our listeners for subscribing, reviewing and sharing on The Green Fence. My name is Neil King. Take it easy and take care. You've been listening to an episode of DW Environments on the Green Fence podcast from their new mini-season on plastics. You can find the rest of the season and all their other episodes anywhere you get your podcasts. Same goes for Living Planet, of course. We'll be back next week with our regular show. Until then, I'm Sarah Steffen. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Bye for now.